With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ah. Recorded live. And then I get an error saying recording did not start. Yeah, it seems like it started. I've got an, only an end button to push. Weird. Okay. Well, I got these other recordings going. Let's see. Welcome to Podcast Winterfell 260. It is the week two of Game of Thrones. We are reading the book, Game of Thrones. Some of you, hoping to encourage some of you to read these books with us for the first time. My name is Matt Murdick, and I am from podcastwinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find the uh, social media and contact information, as well as podcatcher links. And I would love it if you would take the time to leave me a little bit of a review on iTunes or Stitcher of the written kind. One because it helps me stay more noticeable among other great A Song of Ice and Fire podcasts. Two, because it helps me continually improve the show if you add your criticisms in the written review. And three, because you still have one week to enter into the contest uh, to win A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, the illustrated compilation of the three Duncan Egg novellas that have been released so far in anthologies. This is the last week to be able to do so. We will draw our winner on October 6th, the day that the book comes out. So if you have not left a review yet, you have a scant few days left to do so. Some people who have taken the time to do so in the last week, Rekaramam in the U.S. iTunes Store, McWarwick in the Sweden iTunes Store, and Dave Lane in the Stitcher Store. Thank you all for taking the time to leave a written review. Don't get passed up, folks. I'll give the all you, the only way you can be in the contest is to have left a written review on iTunes or our Stitcher. If you've done so already, no worries. I've got your name already to go into the little pot to draw names out of next week. But uh, if you haven't done so uh, by probably by October sixth, your time wherever you are in the world, it won't show up on my iTunes uh, reviews app. So you need to do that as quickly as possible. Also, we want to remind you about our friend Heath Snow from the podcast Littlefell, uh, or yeah, podcast Littlefell podcast about the television show Game of Thrones. He has a new film coming out on October sixth as well. October sixth is a big day. New book coming up for George. New film coming up for Heath. Uh, it will be available on Directv, Dish Network, ATT Universe uh, on demand, as well as at Amazon.com and other various local retailers. Uh, you can uh, pre-order it online right now at Amazon.com as well. The film is entitled All-American Bikini Car Wash, and our friend Heath plays the big mobster Tony. It's a throwback comedy, kind of in the vein of American Pie and Revenge of the Nerds. It will also be released in 20 countries over the month of October and November. So please check your local listings 
if you are not in the U.S. It still may be coming your way. If you want more information about Heath's new film, you can go to at double A Bikini Car Wash on Twitter, or you can like the movie on Facebook, All American Bikini Car Wash. And uh, we'll continue to have sporadic theory cast as well uh, as we go out throughout the uh, uh, out the year. Uh, we haven't had one recently, but we will be having one soon. And with that, I'd like to have a couple folks on with me right now who have been on some of our prior theory casts. First, we'll start with Susan. How are you, Susan? I'm fine, Matt, and happy International Podcast Day. That's right. We are recording it on International Podcast Day, and it will be released hopefully the next day. If I have my editing chops together tonight, we will see. Thank you very much. Happy International Podcasting Day to you. Uh, what are some of the podcasts that you listen to on a regular basis uh, since we're celebrating International Podcast Day? Oh, gee. Um, Radio Westeros, they just came out with a um, new episode focusing on Theon and his arc in the story. And um, History of Westeros, uh, they just uh, put out uh, one about uh, Damon Blackfire of the uh, Blackfire Targaryen Rebellion. Ooh. So those are a couple of my uh, my favorites that just came out with some new ones. Are there any non-Song of Ice and Fire podcasts that you listen to? <laughs> um, actually, there's um, a really good one from my former fam- fandom of Harry Potter that is called um, MuggleNet Academia, where they actually are looking into the scholastic... Um, uh, Ways that people are approaching the Harry Potter series now in the uh, in colleges and, and studying it and uh, and those kind of applications. And they have some great shows. They've put out one recently about uh, the Cormoran Strike series, which is uh, J.K.R. Rowling's new uh, detective novels uh, coming out with their third book next month. You know, back in the day, in the dark ages, when I was in college, I would have killed for being able to major in George R. R. Martin and J.K. Rowling. <laughs> you can't. There's, Truly. there's so many classes that you can take these days in universities regarding uh, not just J.K. Rowling, but also uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, or even Game of Thrones, the TV show in general. I, I know that uh, there was a Dothraki uh, class that you could take for college credit, I believe, uh, offered up by one university somewhere. I don't remember what the university was. Uh, I bet Bubba from the Joffrey of Podcast would probably know, though, wouldn't you? Well, Matt, I'm here to school everybody, so you better believe I know. Let me <laughs> say, I had to come on Podcast Winterfell. I was going to let you guys just read the book, but then I listened to last week's podcast, Winterfell, review the first couple of chapters in A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. And I thought to myself, I need to go there, and finally, this podcast can have some male representation. I mean, women, let's be honest, they live longer, there are more of them than there are of us. And when I mentioned they live longer, look at these novels. Spoiler alert, they live longer than us men. I'm here to give a male perspective, finally, on Podcast Winterfell. I'm glad to be here, glad to be here with our great friend Susan. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, you run multiple podcasts yourself for International Podcast Day. So happy International Podcast Day to you. I can think of the Joffrey of Podcasts, the Lost Hope Podcast, the Got Your Milk, the Strain Podcast, 
Uh, let's see. Uh, what go set a watchman? Uh, Read along what, podcast. That's right. Yeah, there was there's a a ton of them. You've got another one coming up in the next uh, in later in the fall, correct? That's correct. And the only way all the listeners to wonderful podcasts Winterfell can find out is to follow me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F I T T E N T R I M at Fit and Trim on Twitter. Please follow me and write me and ask me to list all the podcasts that I waste my life doing. Yeah, absolutely. Or you can follow the Double P Podcast Network on Facebook. Right. Is that right? Amen. Amen. Go to Facebook.com slash Double P Podcasts, and you'll find out all sorts of fun things, including some that you've guest starred on yourself, Matt. All right. Uh, well, uh, I apologize in advance to you folks who might stumble across those casts, but I... Uh, I appreciate it if you give time to Bubba to listen since he's given time to us to talk about these great books. Uh, With that, I do want to warn anybody in our chat room that we are trying to encourage new readers to this series as well as entertain rereaders of this series. Uh, It's kind of a hard balance to strike, but what we're going to do is when we discuss these chapters, Anything that correlates with the television show that has happened in the books is open for discussion from a reread standpoint. If it doesn't quite coordinate with the television show or if it differs or if it's not present in the television show to date, then we would appreciate it uh, if we wait until the spoiler section to discuss it. And that goes for you folks in the chat, too, because you never know who's in the chat who hasn't uh, read all of the books either. So. Uh, We'll try to be very leery of that from this side of the conversation. And with that, um, let's go to the first chapter, because we've got a lot to talk about here. We will start with Eddard 1. A quick summary of the chapter. King Robert arrives at Winterfell, and and Ned takes him to the crypts in order to pay respects to Ned's sister, Lyanna. There they speak of her, John Aaron, and Robert offers the position of Hand of the King to Ned. Bubba, we've not heard from you yet on any of this stuff from Game of Thrones as of yet. So uh, what did you think of the first four chapters, rereading them this time around, and uh, I guess just kind of as a general real quick, and then uh, what's your first thought on this particular chapter? Well, I think that's a great question, Matt. Reading these uh, first four chapters of the novel, A Game of Thrones, were really weird because I'm only familiar with this author's more recent works where they're long, boring, and characters wander in the woods. And so these (laughs) short chapters where exciting things happen, I was a bit thrown for a loop. I can only imagine that it was a pleasant re-surprise for you. Did it bring you back to to the days when you first became a Song of Ice and Fire fan, I assume? It really, really did. I read these about six months before the uh, miniseries came out on HBO. Sorry, before the series and series started on HBO way back when. And uh, really an overview of not only the first four, but the chapters we're going to cover tonight, I would say is that what's interesting is how much of this feels planned and then how much little details about the plan have at least changed. And so uh, I love it. I think that's great. Excellent. All right. Well, what were your impressions of this uh, Ed chapter, sir? Eddard? To be honest, this is the one that grabbed me and I had the most impressions on. And I guess what I would say is in this chapter, one of the things I always wonder is because I I listen to podcasts like Podcast Wonderful, which are so great, and people talk about things like, oh, I, I... Robert is, you know, he was a terrible king. He was just a drunk. He was this and that. 
And one of the reasons I've always kind of wondered is I've always liked him. I've always thought, you know, he's a very likable guy. And I think the basis for this is in this very first uh, Eddard chapter where we actually meet him for the first time. And one, one of the reasons why that we like him so much, Ned likes him. There's a great thing at the beginning where Robert immediately, you know, wants to go down to the grips and pay his respects. And Ned thinks to himself, I love him for that. And then also, uh, you know, he's just uh, very likable, Robert is. Like, he's down in the crypt, and Ned keeps saying, your grace, and Robert, you know, he's like a, a, your friend, your real friend would say, you know, look, if I hear one more, your grace, that's out of it. So um, I think uh, I think it's interesting, and I wonder if that's why, despite all the quote-unquote negative things we know about Robert, is that he's a drunk, he doesn't love his wife, all these things, why, at least for me, and I think actually many other people, why we like him so much is because our first introduction to him and a, and a lot of our uh, dealings with him are through someone who does like him in Eddard, a.k.a. Ned Stark. I would agree. Um, and also, you know, as a person who read this book for the first time after I'd seen season one, I kind of already had a picture of, of Robert in my in my head from the television show, you know, knew what was going to happen to him. But even even reading the book for the first time right back after season one and, and rereading it this time, um I think what what I what I find is is that uh the show did so well to make uh that uh that actor, uh Mark what's his name? Mark Addy. Addy. He made he made Robert so likable that uh, I think that colored into my even my reading of it. So I, even though I know that he is not the greatest person in the world, and you see, especially in the rest of these chapters, people on the outside of Ned, when they look at the king, they're not nearly as impressed as he is, and he's not even that impressed. It's, you know, he feels like his friend is is kind of let go a little bit, so to speak. But um, being in in Ned's head here. Uh, you get a sense of a little bit more of of why they are why they are friends than maybe you do from the television show even. Um, yeah, I, but I, I wanna, thought that. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on this, Matt, and I want to ask you that tied to Robert because he is such a strong presence in this particular chapter. There is a great section in here where Robert complains about sitting on the quote damnable iron chair, and that I wonder if readers really without maybe having seen the TV show, like if readers, when you're just reading this chapter, if you really understand that's almost kind of like a mission statement for the novel and or did we take it serious? You know, this guy's king. How can he complain? Where in a lot of sense, he's completely right. Sitting on that damnable iron chair is terrible. So uh, that was just another thing that grabbed me about him. Another reason why I think it's easy to like him despite his flaws. Yeah, yeah. I understand that completely because it certainly we, you know, uh, we found out through the course even of the television series that this is uh, a lot about seeing people encounter or embrace or not embrace so well the difficulty of ruling. So uh, great point there. Susan, what do we have uh, that you want to dig into about this chapter? Well, um, something that I had brought up last week, especially when we were talking about the prologue, was how uh, George Martin had really uh, done a lot to set the, the tone and the mood of the chapters and what's going on, um, like how spooky and just uh, you were, had the sense of fear in that uh, prologue. Well, here as this Eddard chapter 
uh, begins and you're getting the royal procession come in, I think he really went out of his way to give you this sense of grandeur as this uh, uh, river of gold and silver and polished steel, 300 strong, a pride of bannermen and knights and sworn swords and free riders. So you have this, uh, you can really envision this, this grand procession coming into Winterfell. And you also get introduced to some key characters here. Uh, so Jamie Lannister with his hair as bright as beaten gold and Sandor Clegane with his terrible burned face. So you're just getting introduced to characters that are going to be key to the series. And I think it's interesting to see the way that, that they're described in these initial sentences to kind of give you those initial impressions. And uh, as far as um, uh, the king is is um, concerned, I agree with everything Bubba was saying about him, um, but you also do get this sense through Ned's eyes of this man who's really gone to uh, waste here compared to, you know, what he, what he was before when he talks about the fact that he was, uh, you know, when he rode forth to the, to the, uh, with a throne, he was clean-shaven, clear-eyed, and muscled like a maiden's fantasy. And uh, here he has gained, um, said, eight stone, at least eight stones. So I had to, of course, look up a stone. It's 112 pounds. That's a lot of weight. And uh, now uh, it's perfume that clung to him like perfume instead of the lead and leather and blood that had in previous days. Yeah, it's uh, uh, I love that line especially because it kind of gives you a whole different state of, of where that character is. That he he's you know gone from warrior to uh, just a, a guy sitting there. But I also you know I kind of feel bad for him in that way. It seems like he's uh, to me that that's a sign of somebody who's not enjoying their life very much. No, no, and here, even though there isn't um, a lot of the historical comparison, it doesn't go to uh, a great degree, but a little bit of the Henry VIII you can see here as far as a man who'd been uh, very much a athletic man and a, and a very uh, a giant of a man who uh, loomed over the others, and because of life and injuries that he had had, he had really just and the overeating and the, his lifestyle had uh, uh, become a prisoner in his own body. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. One thing that shocked me is that way back when, not only was Robert in shape way back when, he didn't have the beard back then. That was a bit shocking. It was like, oh, 15 years passed when they had ridden forth to win a throne. Robert didn't have a beard. I was like, boy, it's hard to imagine Robert without a beard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's a couple of characters. I mean, there's lots of mentions of, of the whole King's Party coming in. There's a couple of mentions of characters that have been mentioned in the show that we haven't uh, really met in the show. So a, a couple of, well, one of them we can't, and that would be, of course, Ned's sister, Liana, uh, because she is dead, evidently, uh, in the crypts there at Winterfell. Um, but uh, in the show, we actually even saw John Aaron, um, or at least his body, uh, at the beginning, very beginning of the show. Uh, and there's also the mention of Howland Reed uh, in, within Ned's thoughts. Um, so you get a, a, a mention of some characters, and the only real mention of Howland Reed has been by Jojen and Mira, 
in the uh, what was that the uh, season three opener or when when they first met Bran might have been episode two of season three. Yeah, um, that's right. And it was Bran. Really, the only mention of them is when Bran and Jojen are having a talk on the path there, where uh, Bran said something like, "Alan Reed is your father," you know. And so that's all that's been mentioned on the show. Yeah. So I found that very interesting that um, that he is brought up uh, very early on in this book as compared to um, how late we get uh, even an semblance of how of who he is. Uh, in the television show. What else do you have for me, Bubba? Well, just a couple of things, since we're talking about this from a reread perspective, and if you've watched the show. The great thing about, and you guys mentioned it on last week's podcast, the great thing about these podcasts is how you, you know, you are very limited to the kind of the POV character's perception. So one of the things is that... Uh, I believe it's Eddard who thinks about his wife, Catelyn, and her sister, Liza. He's like, oh, they were the closest of girls, and she would be welcome here as well. Little does Ned even begin to know, and we certainly don't know how Catelyn thinks yet in the novel, because we haven't read uh, Continuous, is how Liza had a lot of problems with Catelyn, and they weren't, quote-unquote, the closest of girls. Right, yeah, and we even see that exhibited, uh, of course, uh Further on in this series, uh, in season one, uh, when Catelyn first goes to Lysa for help, um, right. she's, or I guess this is after Ned, uh, after uh, you know they find out what's happened to Ned, or she goes to Lysa for help, and Lysa's having nothing to do with it. She and that doesn't seem very sisterly at all, does it? No, not at all. Or if they yeah. were the closest of girls, they no longer are. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I, I totally agreed. Um, what else do we have? Well, one of the things that jumps out at me is we never saw these two characters together on the show, and uh, so is how Robert really reacted with Tywin Lannister. We saw on the show him kind of badmouth his wife Cersei a couple times by saying, every time you speak, you know, your mouth opens and your father's voice comes out. But here we find out that Robert wanted to foster Robin Aaron, a.k.a. John Aaron's son, with Tywin Lannister. And so certainly Robert must have thought something of Tywin if he was willing to send, uh, you know, his dad's son to foster with him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's something I'd like to go on further about that uh, when we get to our spoiler section, but I'll save it for there. Yeah. Uh, uh, but um, also uh, the idea that uh, that Lysa wasn't interested in that, and when Ned offers that he could uh, foster the boy instead, you know, then Robert brings up, no, we can't do that because it's already been offered to Tywin, so it would be, you know, it would be a uh, insult to him if I turned around and let him be fostered somewhere else. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, and, and kind of the excuse Robert gives is the fact that, you know, uh, he's got Lannisters in his house. He's got Cersei there with him, right? He's like, you're not sleeping mm-hmm. with Lannister. Uh, right. So uh, again, that that kind of uh, also speaks to the, the well beyond just them saying, you know, uh, I want to uh, drink and w- winch myself uh, <laughs> to an early grave. Um, you know, it also speaks to the fact that uh, it doesn't seem like you kind of get the impression from this chapter that there's not a whole lot of love between Robert and Cersei. Uh, it is more uh, a marriage of duty. Right. For sure. 
One thing I also, when I was talking about the, the setting moods, and as Bob was talking about them going down to the crypts, I think the uh, description of the crypts themselves with the uh, uh, Lords of Winterfell carved, you know, their likenesses carved in stone sitting next to their tomb with these great dire wolves carved up around their feet and how they had these swords across their laps in order to keep away vengeful spirits, but that some of the oldest swords had actually rusted away to nothing and Ned wondered if that meant the ghosts of these uh, uh, past lords might be free to roam the castle. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Susan, when I read that passage, to be honest, I I was still a bit torn. Well, how much does Ned think of this as just superstition? Or why is he even thinking of it at all? I guess that's why I was wondering, because I don't see... Ned Ned never came across to me as someone who believed uh how do you say it who who believed in the supernatural yeah, he doesn't even no. believe the others are dead or or right. or the others are around or anything like that so. but to but to think in his own mind because that's what this p o v really is is that oh, I wonder if they're out there sneaking around or something. I suddenly think, mm-hmm. oh. yeah. And talking about being in his own mind, I think this is this is the first chapter, even though it's not the first Ned chapter, it's the first chapter, or is it the first Ned chapter? It is. Maybe it is. Okay, Okay. well, we get the, uh, his first thoughts about uh, uh, Liana and Promise Me and a room that smelled of blood and roses uh, when he and the king are reminiscing about his sister. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, and that yeah, the 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 funny thing was that I, I think there was a the word fevered words or, or fevered request or, or something like that put in there. So are we under the impression here that Liana was ill? Well, it said the fever had taken her strength, and her voice had been faint as a whisper. Um, but um, you know if. You know, with the show and so forth, I, I know that I think we can talk about the fact that, you know, there are the theories about whether she had a child. Um, if you're talking about something like a, a child bed fever, that could account for it. Okay. I didn't know that there was such a thing. So that's why yeah. I asked the question. Excellent. That's where right. a lot of women who died in the Middle Ages died of, you know, these kind of complications with childbirth. It was because of infections and so forth that would come as a result of that. Ah, okay. So she gave birth, got an infection, and the infection caused the fever. That would be interesting. That would that would explain it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting. Interesting. What were you going to say, Bubba? Oh, just that I was going to say that 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 the description that Martin mm-hmm. uses is so great. About first, he was talking about how King Robert now smell, smelled of uh, perfume of perfume as uh, Susan pointed out, and just now how you guys pointed out that the room Liana died in smelled of blood and roses. And then the infamous Promise Me, Ned, which uh, is a memory that obviously comes to him whenever he thinks of his sister. And you have to love how uh, it's coupled in this chapter with Liana coming home, even in Ned's head. Um, that, that you know, it's very much implied uh, just by the context there that um, that the promise me was to to bring her back to Winterfell. Oh yeah. 
Anything else on this chapter, guys? No, I, I don't have any other notes other than uh, as we kind of blew by, the chapter begins with everybody entering the courtyard. And now that we've seen the show and this is a reread, it's funny just how they kind of go bam, bam, bam. There's Jamie. There's there's the hound. There's Joffrey. There's Tyrion. Like they, you know, he doesn't point out anybody who isn't going to be a big character. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. And he does so in a very uh, economic fashion. How about you, Susan? I have a couple of minor things. One is that when they are talking about uh, uh, Robert Aaron and his inheritance, they uh, Ned learns that Robert was not going to appoint on him the office of um, Warden of the East, which was traditional... Mm for the errands, and so, you know, as Robert was explaining, he couldn't put that on a six-year-old boy, and maybe he'd give it to him as he as he came of age, but still it was something that really surprised Ned that he was going to take that away from that position. And uh, lastly, uh, in, when he's offering him the hand, he also comes up with the offer of uh, uh, bringing their houses together with his... Uh, Son Joffrey and uh, Sansa. Yes, yes. The Joffrey Sansa saga begins right here. You know, Sansa gave. Uh, I'm sure Bubba will say that Sansa gave Joffrey so much trouble. Uh, damn his father for for even suggesting this uh, marriage. Correct. Yeah, it was big, big trouble. Big, big trouble. But let's have a. Can we have a real quick debate? Do you think? Because I. When Robert presented it that way, I kind of almost agreed with him. Yeah, why would you suddenly name a, a little kid Warden of the East, even if it is just a ceremonial title? It, with a title like that, it feels real funny to suddenly give it to a kid. I uh, Yes, I, I can see the sense of that, but I guess because of Ned's surprise in it, to me that meant, well, this was not something that was that – there was something unusual about that. And so it just kind of caught my eyes, okay, you know, what's going on? Because it doesn't really explain much more about it here. That's true. That's true. I, I feel also, for me, um, it kind of sheds a light on Ned's way of thinking about, you know, here he is. He is uh, the Lord of Winterfell, and he's been, his line, his family line has been the lords of Winterfell and even kings in the past, you know just by right of blood. And so it's something, it almost says to me something of the, to the effect that Ned feels like that um, titles can't be taken away by anything other than the loss of the blood. I agree. Yeah. Um, but Robert's thinking outside of the box, right? Good for right. Robert. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you got to expand it. And trust me, <laughs> yeah, has anybody ever dealt with young kids <laughs> well, we all know what Robert in the television show is like. Imagine him being the Warden of the East. Right. Oh, brother, yeah. yeah. It, it also might speak to the fact that Robert knows something that Ned doesn't right now. You know, it, it could actually just speak to that. It's like, I know this kid. He's a crazy kid. I don't <laughs> want him as Warden of the East. Understandable. Um, yeah. So, uh, anything else, guys, on Eddard? No, let's keep moving. we got chapters to hit. All right. Well, let's move on to John 1, then. 
John observes the feast in honor of the king from a mandated distance, gets drunk, talks to his uncle Benjamin about joining the Night's Watch, gets his feelings hurt and runs outside, and meets up with Tyrion Lannister up close and personal. Um... I, I guess the first thing I want to say is, is, is uh, I want to jump right to the end of the, of the, uh, of the chapter. I love this line uh, where, where uh, Tyrion reenters the hall, uh, a shadow as tall as a king. And then I remember from A Clash of Kings and from the television show, varies this line uh, about Tyrion saying, and oft times a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Um, I love the way those, those kind of little things just keep reappearing throughout George's series uh, and throughout the television series as well. Yes, I love that line as well. I, in fact, had had uh, uh, wanted to definitely point that out. That's one of my favorite lines, that last one. Well, what else do you have for us, Susan? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, this, this introduces us to John and uh, gets into his head a bit here and the fact that he was not seated with his uh, siblings uh, because of the royal family being there, that typically he would have been seated with his siblings, but instead he was seated down with uh, the rest, uh, well, with the you know household people. And, of course, he was trying to make out like that was uh, actually a better position to be in and he was happy to be there, but obviously he was bothered by it and uh, you know we see that in, in evidence and in, in definitely in different circumstances. And also, I think his his observations of the uh, family as they come in and his comments on them, how uh, you know he wasn't at all impressed with Robert after having listened to stories about him by his father, how he could see that the queen was uh, you know matter that she was a beautiful woman that. You could tell that she was cold and and uh, kind of disdainful to those around her, and he was fascinated with Jamie, who was in his eyes the embodiment of what a king should be. Uh, things like that, uh, you know, that he was paying attention to. It talks about him being very perceptive, and I think, and I had uh, done some reading on some uh, analysis on this chapter as well. Uh, and this other person agreed with me, with what I'm going to say here. It seems like that was something that that George started out with here, but maybe kind of dropped for John because later on we don't, you know, as he's getting into trouble, um, as we know in the show he got into as as Lord Commander, he didn't seem to necessarily be so perceptive of what was going on with him with his men. Yeah, I want to say something that jumped out at me is there's this little factoid where. Uh, John mentions, ah, Darian Targaryen. He's one of my heroes. And I'm like, uh, for somebody being one of your heroes, you never tend to ever think of him again <laughs> across <laughs> all these books. So that, to me, is one of those points where I think so much has of this has been planned by George. I think these, some of these little facts are like, eh, not so fast. Well, let's, just take, let's just take a second to, to theorize for just a moment about, or at least speculate, maybe not necessarily theorize, but to... Uh, take a moment just to speculate about something that Susan brought up there because that caught my attention too. Is that uh, John, when he's thinking about Jamie, this is what a king should look like? Um, do you think that there's a chance, and it hasn't been revealed in the books 
or in the television show as of yet. Uh, so this, again, total conjecture. But is, do you think there's ever a chance that Jamie might sit the Iron Throne? I, I always... I. I always think of it and then dismiss it. And so have I thought about it? I have thought about it a lot, and I could almost see ways in which it would make sense. And maybe I should save that for the spoiler section. Uh, I was going to say, there's something I could say about that, but I think it would be best in that other part as well. So we've got two yeses, but we can't explain. (laughs) Right. I got you. All right. Well, folks, for those of you who have reread, we will explain, or who are rereading, we will explain uh, further on down the line. But I just wanted to throw the question out there because um, we as rereaders know that George sometimes throws in lines that, I, I mean, let's face it, uh, we've been doing a whole series of theory podcasts and, and sometimes a single line will be used as, as textual evidence, um, whether it's truly in context of anything or not. Um, and so uh, it's fun to take those lines and, and kind of move on them a little bit. Uh, Bubba, what are you thinking about this chapter? Well, I've kind of been waiting for you to do this, Matt. Uh, In honor of John, I thought I'd give all my thoughts as a surly 14-year-old teen um, (laughs) because he's just such a little mopey, feelings get hurt. (laughs) Why did you take so long to get to me, Matt? I'm sorry. For example, example, I happen to notice that Princess Marcella is really enamored with my brother Rob and Rob's too busy smiling and having fun. Yeah, great, Rob. Fine. More wine. <laughs> <laughs> so then he calls Marcella insipid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, look at Rob. Therefore, if you're not looking at me, you're insipid. Oh, <laughs> uh, do you really think of John as being jealous like that? No, not at all. Why would you? Listen, oh, you're not my dad, Benjamin. I want to go to the wall. I know what yeah. I'm sacrificing. You're not my dad. I'm going to go outside. I love Please, it. I I'm love not crying at up. all. <laughs> I love that you bring that up, though, Bubba, because uh, that it was something that hit me, too, when, when Benjamin was telling him, you know, I don't really want you to think about going to the wall until you've been with a woman. Let's make sure that's going to work. Uh, and John says that uh, you know, being with a woman won't change him. Um, now, in the light of what happened with the grit, which we all know about from the television show and from A Storm of Swords, um, do you think that John turned out to be right, that the woman didn't change him? Or did she change him in certain subtle ways? What do you think, Susan? Um, yes, I think she did. Um, certainly in terms of his empathy for the wildings and their mm. community and heritage and everything. Absolutely. I agree with that. What do you think, Bubba? You asked Susan first. Is that because I'm a bastard? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because you're a Bubba. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, uh, I would say that um, Egret, if you've seen the TV show, did change him, did open his eyes that were getting opened in a lot of ways about the wildlings. Okay, very good, very good. What else we got on this chapter? Well, does anybody want to solve the mystery? And I'll throw it out to the chat room, too. 
is that John was talking about how uh, Winterfell, when everybody was in at the party, looked like an abandoned holdfast. And John had, and it's written that John had seen an abandoned holdfast before. Does anybody know which one they were talking about? Or I have that question in my uh, in my notes as well. Because I did not know which one he might have been speaking of. I don't either. Susan, do you know? No, no. Hmm. Uh, what kind of abandoned holdfast that we know of from the geography, either from the television show or the books, would be near Winterfell? My only thought it was that maybe somehow he's been down to Moat Kalen, because that kind of feels abandoned when uh, when in in the book. Sorry, this might be a book spoiler for later. The first time they go, uh, go south, it feels like it's a bit abandoned, maybe. But I don't think he call that a hold I mean to me a hold fast sounds like a, a you know a fort a smaller area nothing as right. big as something like a Winterfell where well, Kalen's a pretty large yeah I, uh, it was just the only thing that came to mind so yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't think of one yeah yeah I don't know although for all we know you know uh, perhaps uh, perhaps there are lots of them uh, family die out nobody claims them although I find that hard to believe in this political world uh, but I don't know. It's a great question. It's one I had as well on my list. But I was hoping that someone did have an answer because I sure don't. Okay, here's another question that may never have an answer. In that Benjamin mentions to John that there are dire wolves north of the wall. And I'm trying to think. I know on the show this isn't true. Have we ever seen dire wolves north of the wall? Or we've really only seen the Stark dire wolves north, you know, when uh, Bran's dire wolf summer goes north of the wall or John's direwolf snow uh, sorry ghost goes north of the wall like have we has anybody been out there ranging or anything and seen a direwolf north of the wall in the books or the show that i can think of i can't well i can't remember anybody talking about it in a television show for sure right um the books are so expansive there may have been a ranger somewhere that mentioned them but i i can't recall it for certain susan how about you i don't recall that either i don't remember any wolves other than just regular wolves being mentioned Right. right. I'm sorry that I'm creating a podcast where I'm asking a lot of questions and I don't know the answers. Listeners, if you want to tweet at me the answers, at Fit and Trip, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter. See, Bubba must be getting some, <laughs> he, he's got to be getting some kind of payback. for. I'm so for close to 500 followers. I'm just desperate. Oh, well, <laughs> just get him, get him over the top, folks. Follow him at least, you know, until you see that he's at like 510 or something and then, you know, then unfollow, you can right. follow him. Yeah, yeah. Just so he can say that he's been there. we got to get him to the line. <laughs> uh, what else do we have on this chapter, guys? Anything? Um, well, I think that uh, the interaction with Tyrion, you know, besides that last sentence, is, of course, very important. I mean, this is the first interaction that the two of them have. And first off, I want to point out that uh, when John meets him and Tyrion is uh, sitting up on this uh, roof and does this crazy somersault flip or whatever to the crown, uh, that's the only time we ever see anything like that in the books, and that's something that George Martin has pointed out that he really wished he hadn't put in there because it really doesn't make sense for somebody with a condition like Tyrion's to be able to do things like that. But later on in the book, they, you know, he's always talking about how sore he is and how how hard it is for him to get around and so forth. So Yeah, like uh, he has to massage his legs. Yeah. yeah, so having those kinds of gymnastic skills really wasn't... Um, it wasn't really a realistic thing. 
But uh, I always hear people comment on it when they're talking about this first chapter. Oh, wasn't that cool what she did? But um, just the interaction between the two of them and the advice that uh, Tyrion uh, starts out by giving to Jon after he, you know, says, you know, aren't you the the bastard of Winterfell? Um, And Jon, you know, acts uh, in light of how he's been acting. You know, he looks offended and Tyrion comments on it and tells him the, you know, the advice of uh, not to let people use uh, those types of slice against you, but, you know, to, to wear them like armor so that nobody can uh, can hurt you that way and that, that that'll be a strength. Um, you know, that is so important. And, you know, the, the comment uh, about, um, you know, how would, you know, how would you know uh, how would you know about being a bastard? I love the comment, all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. Yeah. Uh, again, speaking right to the, uh, and that was in the show too, but speaking right to something that we see play out in the show and the books, and that is this um, resentment that Tywin seems to have of Tyrion being his son. Um he, he, you know, and that's it, uh, something we can also elaborate on further in in the uh, the spoiler section as well, because there were a couple of things that I want to point out about that in the thing. But I want, I do also want to go back uh, to you talking about the tumbling thing, because I don't think this is a spoiler to tell anybody um, that later on in the book series, not in the television show, but in the book series, um, Tyrion remembers as a child doing a lot of the tumbling and everything. I guess is it, was that George's kind of fix. <laughs> for, for why we see this, you think? Backwards math, huh? <laughs> yeah. And maybe it would be easier for uh, a kid, you know, to do a little bit of that. But, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's just kind of like, uh, you know, just to justify that he could even luck his way into it these days. Uh, George, right. like he had to write something in there about Tyrion's childhood where he did that kind of stuff often, right? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. Well, Matt, if people have watched the series through season four, there's a line that uh, Tyrion says to, uh, or sorry, that his father says to him, you know, Tywin's last words tied to a line Tyrion says in this chapter about how uh, Tywin's, you know, last words are, you are no son of mine. And in this chapter, Tyrion mentions how his father, you know, kind of doubted he was, you know, or wanted to doubt he was his son in the uh, thing. So that's kind of funny uh, circling back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, uh, that that whole tension is played out beautifully in the television show and in the books, too. Can't wait yeah. for you guys to be able to get there. Um, for you new readers and those of you who reread know exactly what we're talking about. What else do we have on John 1, guys? I just like that we get uh, more information about Ghost and uh, John's relationship with him. We're He's bigger now bit. than the rest of the dire wolves, right? Is, is it not implied? Did you say that? The ghost, is, I... ghost is bigger than the rest of the dire wolves now? Yeah, that is true. Okay. I didn't catch oh. that part. But just the fact that, you know, that, you know, he's, he's totally silent and, um, the encounter that they have with the other dog, which is much larger than Ghost, but Ghost is able to just, uh, you know, his his presence and just his, um, you know, the fact that uh, he's a wolf, I guess he's able to cow the other dog and it doesn't try and get his chicken. Right, uh, right, yeah, fierce. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
So I just, uh, you know, I, I love ghosts. It's one of my my favorite of the dire wolves. And uh, so I just enjoy just getting to know him a little better and his relationship with John. Uh-huh. Very good. Anything else? No, let's roll. All right. Catlin 2. Catlin and Ned discuss him becoming Hand of the King, and then Maester Lewin brings a secret message from Catelyn's sister, Lysa, accusing the Queen of Westeros of killing John Arryn, or people in her court. A resistant Ned agrees to go south to perform the duties asked and insists that his two daughters and two youngest and second youngest son, Bran, come with him, leaving Catelyn to rule Winterfell, his eldest son, Rob, to learn to govern in his absence, and his youngest son, Rickon, to grow older under Catelyn's care. When Catelyn protests the bastard Jon Snow staying behind, Maester Lewin tells Ned about Jon's wish to join the Night's Watch, and Ned reluctantly agrees. Um, so, uh, lots of stuff happening in this chapter. Bubba, let's start with you, brother. Well, I just want to follow up what you were just talking about in the description, in that for people who watch the television show, and I think the first season of the television show does a really good job with a lot of things, but I remember a lot of people uh, were wondering well, in the second episode, well, why are the girls going with Ned and the boys are staying behind and all this stuff? And I really thought that Ned's explanation worked pretty well about, okay, why the kids would go where, or, or you know, who would come to court, who would stay in Winterfell. And I really think that the show could have used that bit of exposition to just help that first little uh, hiccup there in the second episode for some viewers is one of the things I thought. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, naturally by the second episode, Bran had already fallen, right? He fell right. at the end of the first episode, so there was no way that he was coming Um, but there was no explanation for Rickon. And remember, all of the kids are actually aged up. Uh, As we saw in the John chapter, Rickon is only three, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, he's he's much older than three in the television show. So um, I don't know. I agree with you, Bubba, that a a little further explanation as to why Rickon did come uh, would have been uh, pretty good. Um, or even why Rob was staying behind, although that does make sense, him being the firstborn and the, and the heir. Um, but it, it's still, um, I, I like what you were saying there. Uh, Susan, do you have any thought on that? Well, um, I agree with, with what Bubba's saying. I think that the show could have benefited from that. Um, my first comment on this chapter have to do again with uh, you know setting the environment. I love this description at the beginning about uh, how uh, Winterfell uh, was built over these hot springs, and that uh, because of that they had water, I guess, being piped through the walls, so the walls are warm, and um, that allows them to have the uh, glass gardens, and that there are, I think it says like uh, uh, dozens of. Uh, little pools that smoke in the day and night in little courtyards. And uh, what a big benefit that would be in the winter to have this uh, this castle be, be uh, uh, located over these hot springs. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it really sets up why and how any place could survive in these infamous year-long winters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. And why uh, 
why Winterfell may have become, I don't know, it, it may speak to it as to why the Starks of the First Men chose that place. Um, it ensures survival of the, 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 the king, right? The king of the north. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, very good there. Um, I, here's something that threw me, because in the television show, um, and I remember the first time reading that, that that this threw me and made me think maybe there's something more to this, which, of course, in the television show, we find out there is more to this. But uh, Lysa's message arrives a lot more secretively uh, in the books than it does in the television show. There's no writer. There's seemingly no raven. Um, but since we know from the television show that uh, Lysa uh, and Littlefinger kind of plotted together, about this whole thing about John Aaron um, doesn't appear to be that Littlefinger is in this court right now either. So I asked the question, how did the message get to Maester Lewin? Who put it there? Man, I had um, the same question, Matt. I had the exact same question. Who, yeah, who, who was in the party who would suddenly know Maester Lewin's office and then be able to sneak in there without being seen and stuff? Uh, it, it, it is a bit of a mystery that I don't know the answer to. Susan, do you have a guess? Any? No, I, I have to admit I hadn't really ever thought too too much about uh how about that part of it. But uh but yeah, it would have to be somebody that was being uh paid to uh to get that there, I would imagine. Somebody in in the hire of uh Lysar Little Finger. I introne in the chat room is throwing out some book characters and he said maybe a kettle black. So uh, I think that's a good as a guess as any. Yeah, true. Possibly so. True. Possibly I so. I do think that it's interesting how how it was set up in the book uh, and how you know the it's the the type of kind of riddle again that I think you see this kind of thing more in that in that period of time where people were were set up to think about things. The fact that Master Lewin looks at this uh, glass and figures that this might be something that there might be a mystery about this, about seeing something, and he figures out, the finds the uh, uh, fake bottom that allows him to find this message in the first place. And I did hear somewhere somebody, one of the showrunners, talking about that they had started to try and do something like this for the show, but it just got too complicated, so they they, they didn't do it. But um, I do think it's mm. clever in the fact that Catelyn and, and Lysa had this uh, – uh, private language from their youth that she coded the the message in, so she was being very secretive here about about the whole thing. Um, obviously, understanding the danger. I mean, here it is going along with the king and his his party. That if anybody had, had seen that, uh, it would have been you know really bad news for Elisa. Yeah, very much so. Um, now, Bubba, I, I heard you and uh, Susan before the show. Uh, before we started recording, you were discussing this point. There is a, a big kind of deviation uh, as to the decision to go to King's Landing, at least in terms of uh, Catelyn's position. Um, do you care to bring that back up uh, while now that we're recording? Sure thing. What uh, Susan and I were talking about, and this is, uh, if anybody's reading this novel for the first time, it's a slight spoiler for uh, a fact that's going to come up in the chapter. But if you watch the show, Game of Thrones, in the first episode when she gets this message and Ned is considering whether to be the hand of the king or not and whether to go to King's Landing or not, 
Catelyn starts off and she's like, no, 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 no. Don't go, don't go, don't go. They're in the show. But then if you read this chapter, Catelyn's like, go, go, go. You got to go. So Catelyn in the book says, hey, you got to go be hand of the king. You got to protect Robert, yada, yada, yada. Well, her in the show was like, Ned, you got to stay with me. Don't go to King's Landing. Uh, so the slight spoiler for a couple of chapters from now, Kate, after Bran has his uh, you know, fall out of the uh, broken tower, Catelyn's going to immediately flip and be like, in the book, she's going to be like, Ned, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And so the sh- I know some show watchers were upset that Catelyn in the show was always no. She wasn't the original go, Ned, go in the first episode. And I considered that a smart move by the showrunners because for her to suddenly flip so quickly in in the first episode to the second episode, that's really a quick turn on a TV show, which wouldn't have the time to kind of budget and explain Catelyn's thought process through, okay, in this chapter, she's go Ned, go to King's Landing. And then in a couple chapters from now, she'll be like, don't go to King's Landing, Ned. So that was my own thought, even though I know many book readers were upset that the show had Catelyn having a completely different thought at this point in the story. And, and do and you my, think that the, real quickly, Susan, um, do you think guys that this is one of the reasons uh, we took, when you look at the story overall and what happens to Ned and even what happens to Catelyn at the red wedding, um, I've seen a lot of book readers lay all of this on Catelyn's feet for this chapter. You know, like, it's all Catelyn's fault. She's told him to go, blah, blah, blah. Oh, um, <laughs> Yeah. I, I've actually seen that <laughs> on forums and things, and I'm kind of like, what? Come on. Catelyn's the greatest character ever. Um, <laughs> you, no. No? Okay. And, and, and I think, and personally, my thought about it, is, especially because uh, with these series have, have gotten me to read more about medieval history and so forth, I really feel like, Catelyn's position here in this chapter is more in line with what someone in her rank would be doing and saying because, you know, she's brought up to be looking for how to put her family in the best positions as possible. And so the idea that, um, you know, she, she knows, I mean, she already knows from Robert that, you know, he wouldn't take kindly to Ned's refusal of something like that. And she doesn't want to put their family in opposition to the throne. And, you know, so she's looking at it in ways of, of what's going to be a best benefit to her family. Now, when this whole thing with Liza comes up then and Ned starts looking at, you know, who's going to be uh, staying and going, you know, I think then that starts to hit her a little bit more in, uh, you know, personally and in, in realizing that she's going to be having to give up for this as far as her children being with her. But again, when you look at the whole uh, Tully family duty honor uh, situation, uh, you know she's been taught to to you know be putting her family her family first and to uh, do what's best for them. And so I can see her thinking what she thought here. It makes sense to me. Right. It seems to me it seems to me that the way the show was portraying her was much more of a modern sensibility. And I thought of it more from the viewpoint of they're making her to be the loving wife and mother who doesn't want to lose her children and is fearful for them instead of looking at it as her being having some political savvy and seeing how that would be of advantage to her family. 
Okay. For for people who Matt, you've you've done a great job here with podcast Winterfell, encouraging TV show watchers to now read the books. And I think you brought up a great point that in the books, there's some in based on things in the book, there's some people quote unquote out there in the fan community who who are kind of anti Caitlin people. And sure enough, Fizzlehoff, one of our great people in the chat room, is talking about how if if you go to some message boards, there's too much Caitlin hate and uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's a shame. I think everybody has the right to feel any way they want to about a character. But for me, I don't feel that way, and it, it seems wrong. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, me as well. <laughs> uh, something else that was really interesting, since we all know what happens to Bran uh, in the near future, um, Catelyn warns Ned not to let Bran climb the walls. Oh, around yeah. King's Landing. I love that. Great foreshadowing there. I did, too. Yeah. I thought that was great. I also thought, and this is just my own thought process, I was thinking, you know, this chapter begins, and none of us have mentioned it, this chapter begins right after a special night of love making. It's the quiet <laughs> storm in Winterfell. And I thought to myself, nothing puts Ned in the mood more than having a miserable time at a party with guests he doesn't like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's Randy, ladies. Well, it's funny, too, in reading it, because when it opens up and you're in Catelyn's head, then her thoughts aren't anywhere there. I mean, she's thinking all these different things, and you don't realize that that's what's going on until, you know, a couple paragraphs in after Ned's gotten up and out of the bed. Uh, are you implying that during all this uh, adult time, she was thinking about other things? Yeah. What are you saying about know. what are you th- saying about the little Ned? Oh. I, I think she's just saying that happens all the time with women everywhere. Is what she? No, 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 no! Don't don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> oh boy, I just I hope Ned is done. I want to think about the chores and think about my children and about them moving to King's Landing. Come on, Ned. Oh, we've gone to no man's land. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say that you mentioned that Maester Lewin mentions John's request to Ned, but what inter- what's interesting is it's a bit of a telephone game because it's actually Benjen mentioned it to Maester Lewin who mentions it to Ned, and it makes true. you think: Did Benjen not? Why did Benjen not tell his brother? Once again, I'm not sure there's anything nefarious there, but it, it does seem interesting that Ben that Ned is learning this from Maester Lewin, who learned it from Benjen, rather than Ned learning it from Benjen. Yeah, I thought about that. I was thinking that you know perhaps Benjen felt that he wanted to kind of broach the subject with Maester Lewin because he himself wasn't convinced that it was uh, you know that that John was old enough to to make that kind of decision, so maybe he wanted to kind of just get a feel for you know what things were going on or what Master Lewin's uh, perspective on it was before he talked to his brother because his brother's probably been tied up with Robert and so forth. So I mean, I, I could see how it could have happened through something like that, but I'm just conjecturing here. Or maybe he's do, even just going to maybe he's just going to Maester Lewin as just kind of a counselor to himself because remember at the end of you know when John leaves the the banquet room, Benjamin's there's still not, nothing that has convinced Benjamin that John should be in the Night's Watch. So maybe right. he's just kind of like uh, just going to mm-hmm. not even talking about you know well should I talk to 
dad about it. I'm not going to talk to dad about it until I've decided for myself that it's the right thing. You know, to to John's dad, I mean, to Ned. Right, right. But what I think is even more interesting in in this chapter in regards to John is we get in the beginning um, when she and Ned are, when Catelyn and Ned are first having their conversation when he's standing by the window and um, uh, I think they were talking about the engagement and she mentioned that she had been promised to Brandon at age 12 and there's a remark that Ned has about, uh, you know, everything was promised for Brandon. There's, it, just, it feels like there's some resentment there, and that's when you also first hear her mention about how, the, you know, Ned never talked about, you know, the woman who was John's mother, that those were a couple of things that, uh, that, were, that kind of were in the middle of their marriage that weren't resolved. And then after this whole... Uh, thing comes with Lysa's uh, message and they talk about what kids are going and so forth and the issue about John comes up, then you get even more of her thoughts about what happened, how uh, when she first came home from River Run with um, her son um, and Ned had come home from the war, he had apparently gotten there before her and John was already there with his wet nurse and how this had been very hard for her, the fact that uh, Ned had uh, you know, wanted to raise his bastard here in the household and would never talk about his mother and how she had gotten uh, word on this uh, Shara Dane was a possible candidate for the mother and when she brought it up to Ned that that was the only time that she had ever seen him get so angry that she was, you know, fearful of him. And he told her that, you know, John was his blood and she did not need to question it any more than that. And so it's always been a sore spot. Yeah. Is that a good enough answer if this man is your husband? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh-uh. I really don't. Well, and maybe this, this, maybe this kind of informs, uh, when you think about Catelyn, family, duty, honor. Um, Secrets. Uh, she, well, I, I'm just saying, you know, she... If, if she expects is expected to accept John as part of her family, I mean, obviously she's resentful that Ned did the one thing that nobody else would do, and that's bring the bastard home. But um, if Ned was ever going to think that she could accept, then maybe she needed to understand uh, that Ned, that John was part of the family. Um, and because uh, it upset Ned so much, she went back to the duty thing where it's like, I'm his wife. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem to be the idea that he even had a bastard doesn't seem to be the issue with her. It's right. That he was it's expected. That he brought him to, home. Uh huh. And he was expected to be brought up with her with her children. Yes. Um, and all, uh, seemingly uh, pretty much as an equal, um, which right. speaks speaks to uh, again to to the social class. Uh, uh, of of this world, you know, the, the, the social machinations of this world. And um, because you could see, uh, and we've seen exhibited throughout the books and, and throughout the television show, that bastards are treated as second-class citizens. You kind of got that impression from the John chapter, but it's really this Catlin chapter here that kind of really seals the deal. And how there's even worry um, that... Uh, you know, I think there's something mentioned in there, you know, she wouldn't have to worry about 
uh, or it's alluded to the fact that she might not have to worry about John trying or any of his heirs um, trying to claim Winterfell somewhere further down the line against her grandchildren, right? Right, yeah, she thinks about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it it seems to be, again, uh, Susan, you pointed out that whole uh, how she's thinking about how to better the family, and and this this seems to be another one of those kind of core issues for her. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, she thinks that the Night's Watch is the perfect solution. Yes. For all our TV show watchers who are just now reading the book for the first time, uh, you know there are these names that are going to pop up that have never been mentioned in the show, like for example Ashara Dane. And so I think you'll, for new readers, I think you'll find the most fun or kind of the most quirks finding out about these characters who the show just hasn't had time to talk about yet. Right, exactly. And I'm sure that we'll talk about Ashara Dane uh, a little more in the spoiler section for certain. Um, anything else on this chapter, guys? Uh, no, I feel good. The silence, yeah. other, than Bubba, other than Bubba saying, no, I feel good. Uh, I'm fine. Cue, cue the James Brown, and we'll go to Aria 1. Aria sews badly is jealous of her sister Sansa, gets in trouble, and then finds Jon Snow to watch Bran and Prince Tommen sparring with swords. They witness Prince Joffrey bow out of a second sparring session with Rob due to the type of swords being used, which causes much embarrassment for Rob. Uh, here's one thing that I want to say, uh, and, and this is kind of a book reader thing too, uh, but I, I don't think I don't again feel it's a spoiler. Um, does it come across to you, Susan, that this Aria chapter and possible future Aria chapters in this book um, feel much more mature than some of the chapters, say, like in, even in A Clash of Kings when you're in her head, or, or even A Storm of Swords when you're in Aria's head? Uh, you don't get those words like stupid. And all of this stuff, uh, you know, these these thoughts. Uh, instead, she seems to be evaluating things on, on on a much more mature level than it, it seems like in later chapters. To me, anyway. What do you think? Hmm. Uh, I hadn't really uh, thought about it. I, you know, it didn't jump out at me to where I was thinking about it like that. Um, perhaps some of the, that. Uh, stupid and everything is is coming out because of all the stress she's in in the future when she's uh, fearing for her life and having to uh, you know go from one bad situation to another. Yeah, it's just that uh, you know for someone like when I read certain chapters of A Clash of Kings of Arya's and certain chapters of A Storm of Swords of Arya's, I was like, this is awesome. This is so in the mind of a little girl, you know, right. a young girl. Um, and I didn't get that feeling from this chapter. So I'm wondering if George is still trying to figure out how to be in the head of, of, a, of, of a little girl. He hasn't quite figured it out yet when he wrote this chapter. What do you think, Bubba? Well, I think, it's, I think she's a very consistent character because she begins the chapter like she kind of begins a lot of chapters. She's what I like to call double J. Uh-oh. Joffrey jealous. She's Joffrey jealous. She wishes that she could have gotten to sit next to him during the party rather than fat usurper Tommen. And her jealousy that Joffrey is with her sister is really a motivating factor for her the whole way through. 
I see. Well, we've gotten our Joffrey of Podcast point in. Uh, what else have you got? Well, <laughs> once again, I was just talking about uh, good old Ashara Dane and book characters who've really never been mentioned or really uh, dealt with on the show. For new book readers, you're really going to enjoy this uh, character, Evil Jane Poole, who keeps smirking at Arya for uh, getting attacked for her bad stitching. And really, to me, Arya, when you read this chapter, who is Arya? She's Jan Brady. Sansa, Sansa, Sansa. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, Sansa's pretty. Sansa does this. Oh, why me? And so she's a likable character, but it's interesting reading this chapter how much she is like Jan Brady. I've got nothing for that. I can't disagree. I don't want to agree, but I can't disagree. She is very uh, jealous. Um yeah, I agree. And also something else that comes up in this chapter is the fact that she is the only one of her mother's children that doesn't have the Tully coloring, that she looks like her father. And that because of that, when she was younger, she thought maybe she was a bastard like John. She had gone to John to ask him about it because you know she was concerned about that. And that's something that we did uh, overlook in the last chapter. Is That's one other thing that Catelyn resents about John is that he looks like his father more than any of her children do. So John and Arya are the two children that resemble the Stark family. Everyone else has the coloring of the Tully family. Right. And in the upcoming spoiler section, we should discuss who Arya's real parents are. Okay. <laughs> excellent, excellent comeback. Um, there, there is a, a a line in here uh, that we will talk about in this spoiler section. I won't, I won't bring it up here. Um, here we also we find out that Arya's direwolf is named Nymeria, um, right. who was a Roynish warrior who led her people across the narrow sea, as described in this chapter. Now, in the season four Blu-ray extras in the histories and lore section, there's a whole thing about Nymeria uh, and where she went, uh, where she ended up. I, I won't say here in case you haven't seen the, the extras, um, but um, when, you, when you do look that up, I think that you, you see a lot of, uh, again, last week I talked about the connection of direwolves um, to the people that end up taking care of them. Uh, and why, you know, uh, Nymeria being uh, the name of the direwolf that Arya is with uh, or ends up with uh, seems completely appropriate when you look at Arya's storyline to me. Um, does anybody else feel that way? I think it's great. I honestly think that because these early chapters, uh, the uh, Game of Thrones chapters, I should say, and this whole novel is so kind of tight, it doesn't have some of the fat, if you will, that George puts in. Uh, for example, in the John chapter, Uncle Benjamin comes in and grabs uh, some uh, some onion, some roasted onion, and just one food dish rather than like 50 <laughs> that he might have grabbed. And so because in this specific instance, we don't learn too much about Nymeria. We learn just enough to know that she was a warrior and Arya would uh, naturally kind of gravitate towards her. And also that Sansa's named her wolf lady in comparison. right. right. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what else have you got out for us, Susan? Well, I love the the comment that uh, the Septa had said that Arya had hands of a blacksmith, 
and then when Arya had just had enough here and was wanting to to leave, um, she told the Scepter that she was going to go uh, shoe a horse. <laughs> that was great. That was uh, that was clever. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Bubba, what do you got? Well, I was going to say we go out, we follow her outside, and she sees the boys practice fighting. And there's a real interesting moment between the two direwolves, between Nymeria and Ghost, where uh, you know is everything okay between the two direwolves? Yes, everything's okay, and then everything can keep going. And she sits with John, and they have a bonding moment as they watch Bran battle fat usurper Tommen and then Rob tried to challenge Joffrey but Joffrey wanted to do it you know with a real blade and how uh, Sir Roderick wouldn't let him yeah and this was the first scene I mean there's been slight differences but this is the first scene that is totally omitted uh, from the television series isn't it oh yeah for sure and in some ways, it makes some sense. You just have to, you know, so much plot to get through if you want to end the first episode where it, it should end, where the natural end is. And sure enough, it's in the, you know, spoiler alert, it's in the very next chapter we're going to cover here on Podcast Winterfell. But um, it would have been fun to kind of see some of this natural rivalry. We see in the show, we see uh, Sansa, when Joffrey comes in, she checks him out there in the courtyard and Rob notices it and he gets a bit upset with it. But kind of the building of the true hatred between the Lannisters and Starks doesn't come until the second episode where CSI Catelyn finds the blonde hair in the Broken Tower. So, yeah. (laughs) The Hound mentions that he killed someone when he was 12. Whoa. Yeah. Guy didn't waste any time killing, did he? No, get to it. Yeah, we really get him speaking up here. And then how different would the novels have been if Sir Roderick had allowed the, the two boys to fight? Ooh. Meaning Rob and Joffrey with actual blades. And that's an interesting question. What do you think, Susan? <laughs> well, actually, on the uh, Race to the Iron Throne <laughs> a blog, the, the chapter analysis of this actually went into that. And their suggestion was that uh, probably Joffrey would have uh, tried to draw blood, but that Rob probably would have injured him. Yeah. Well, I I, I don't think that, I mean, Rob even says in this chapter, he says, well, I gave you a couple of whelps the last time. Um, So I don't think that there would be any, uh, any question as to who would win. I just wonder... Rob is not his father, though, so I, I don't know. Would Rob be able to show the restraint not to actually physically hurt Joffrey? I don't know if right. Rob. I I don't know if Rob would get close because Joffrey would also, in addition to a true blade, also have a crossbow in the other hand, and so <laughs> you know, I I think everybody knows who would win. Hashtag yeah. rightful uh, king. Hashtag uh-huh. hashtag one true king. Um, but then, you know, if if something had occurred where uh, there was injury, then you know, what would that mean in terms of the parents and how they would act? That uh, Robert would probably, you know, not think too much of it. But as we saw with what happened with uh, uh, 
Joffrey and Arya, not Miria mm-hmm. later on, uh, yeah. Cersei probably would have made a huge deal of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially, uh, let's just take into account the the uh, the prophecy that we learned about at the beginning of Season 5. Uh, you know, if you haven't read the books, at least you know from the that a prophecy was given to Cersei that her children were in dire danger. Um, if Cersei had been anywhere around that courtyard, that fight would never have happened anyway, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. correct. Um, so we never really think... get to meet the. Oh, sorry. We never really get to meet the Joffrey kind of uh, entourage. You know, yes, we meet the Hound, but apparently this really describes it as if Joffrey really has kind of a group of lackeys, a group of homies who kind of hang out with him and. Uh, you know, when he says, I want to fight with a blade and Rob and Sir Roderick say no, you know, these lackeys are like, oh, you showed him, Joff. Oh, yeah. And so we never really <laughs> met any of these other characters. Yeah, he's got a gang. Oh, Sam, we didn't ever meet them. Interesting. Or, di- or did we? Or did we? Secret varies disguise. <laughs> <laughs> or did did we assassin of uh, of uh, <laughs> of Bran, or uh, perhaps somebody who placed the the message in there? Yeah, exactly. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, what I was gonna say is that John points out to Arya how um, Joffrey's uh, uh, royal sigil that he he uses is how half of uh, the Lannisters and half of the Baratheons. And uh, he thinks that's interesting that uh, that he puts them on an equal level there instead of the fact that his father being the king, that he doesn't just use the Baratheon. Yeah, so and I'm going to say... that's a little bit And I'm going to say... Well, I was just going to say, it, it definitely does say something about where the Lannisters feel their position are in terms of power. Right. Um, but I was going to say, at the risk of, of making uh, the king of the Joffrey of podcasts angry, I was going to say... It just goes to show that mommy's still dressing her little boy. How do you disconnect this call? Oh, what's uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, she's still he's, she's still dressing him up of the day. Well, let me ask you, and and maybe this is tough because we are doing this as a reread, and people who've watched the show. I'll just say for myself, uh, at this point. I certainly had not suspected that Joffrey wasn't the child of Robert and Cersei. It's uh, obviously in the very next chapter where it suddenly becomes, aha, those thoughts can enter. I don't think George has really sprinkled too many hints in. Uh, Back in the Eddard chapter, when Cersei's like, Robert, don't go to the crypt, and he has a line about Jaime placing his hand on Cersei's arm, and that kind of calms her and gets her to kind of just go with the flow. You know, Mm -hmm. the hints are way too subtle for at this point, I think, a first-time book reader who hadn't seen the show to pick up the the truth of Cersei's children's parentage. I agree. Yeah. I agree. But they're great to, they're great to find uh, once you get to that point uh, in the brand chapter next week. Um, then, you, then all of these little things, if you've been making note of them at all, then they do definitely jump up at you, right? Oh, yeah. My... Uh last comment on this chapter is just the the very end of it where um when Arya and John are um are leaving their their seat there and how John tells her that she needs to go off and uh, catch up with her 
uh, with uh, Scepter Mordain since she'd, she'd run out on him. And uh, he has the comment about um, uh, that she, she in, in order to, um, you know, whatever punishment she's going to have, that she needs to go take care of it because she'll be sewing all through the winter. And when the spring thaw comes, they'll find your body with a needle still locked tight between your frozen fingers. And that's a, mm-hmm. a line that, yeah, it's a line that people think, oh, is that a horrible foreshadowing of things that might come? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. A, that's a good call. I also think it's hilarious that, uh, you know, it it was worse than Septim Mordain waiting for her. It was Septim Mordain and her mom. And her mother. Uh-huh. <laughs> and her mother, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's great. Anything else on Aria, guys? Uh, no, it, it's fun that this is her first chapter comes after Catelyn, her mother, has already had two POV chapters. So, Yeah, yeah, uh, it is very interesting. Well, uh, let me go to you first, Susan, since uh, Bubba is still uh, portraying Arya here and being jealous of everything, uh, and John jealous. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how would you rank these week's chapters in an uh, uh, order of preference for reading? Okay. Uh, my favorite chapter this week was the Catelyn chapter. I really enjoyed the whole, uh, you know, getting the secret information uh, from her sister and how that was setting up the things to come and just uh, all the information that we learned in that chapter. And second would be the Eddard chapter with uh, Robert's arrival and the going down to the crypts and uh, everything that happens there. And then um, uh, I'd say John next. Um, even though I think I probably like Arya's attitude a little better here than John's was in his chapter, I like some of the things that were happening in, in John's chapter in terms of the, the feast and his interaction with Tyrion and things that were said there. So Arya's would be last this time. Very good. How about you, Bubba? I'm going to go with Eddard 1. It's, uh, even when I was reading it, what's funny is, you know, Eddard's first POV chapter comes after a good number of other characters got a POV chapter. But even when I was reading it the first time, I could tell that he was kind of the med- main character because everybody, everything did, was kind of pointed towards him. So I'm going to go Eddard 1. I'm going to go Arya 2. Catelyn was my third favorite. And on a reread, my least favorite was John. All right. Uh, and I will go, uh, actually, Catelyn first uh, because there's lots of great information in there. And... Um, uh, it's an interesting uh, read in terms of comparison to the television show. Um, then I will go Eddard. Uh, I will go Eddard one uh, as my second choice um, for a lot of the same reasons you had, Bubba. Then I will go Arya one uh, because I like seeing that side of John more so than I like seeing the side of John at uh, at the banquet. Uh, I understand that they're both actual sides of John, but um, he seemed much more caring in the Arya chapter than he did in the John chapter. Uh, did you did put me it. last? I <laughs> did. That's fine. Whatever. That's great. Fine. I'm, I'll join the Night's Watch. I don't care. Thanks. Read your own POV chapters. I'm outie. <laughs> hey, we got an email from Tracy, our friend at Tracy. With oh, two, he's too easy. Uh, uh, and from Twitter, but she sent an email saying, 
in response to last week's podcast, saying, Susan made note of how brand starts the whole story. Whenever I find myself rolling my eyes at another brand chapter, I remind myself of the section called, of a selection called The Siren Song of Hollywood in Dream Songs 2 by George R. R. Martin. In the passage, George writes of how he had been getting work writing for television, but also writing a sci-fi story titled Avalon. He then drops this particular nugget, quote, The writing seemed to be going well until one day a chapter came to me about a young boy who goes to see a man beheaded. It was not part of Avalon, I knew. I knew I had to write it, too. So I put the other book aside and began what would ultimately become a Game of Thrones. End quote. Not Ned, Danny, John, or Tyrion, but Bran. I am so curious to learn if the story will begin and end with Bran. What does the panel think? Was Bran just a jumping off point, or is he integral to the end game? Bran, Bran everywhere, uh, which is a great jab at uh, me for the, uh, uh, the way I have some theories about Bran. Uh, but anyway, great first episode, everyone. I can't wait for the rest. Uh, Susan, what do you think? Is, I mean, is Bran, given what we know about where Bran is in the television show and in the books, mm-hmm. um, I can't see how he can't, can't help but be part of the end game. Yeah, I would not be at all surprised if he wasn't the final chapter. Ooh, interesting, the final chapter. And, and Bubba, uh, what do you think? I almost, I almost want to use Susan's words verbatim. I think... The one note I'll say, and this is for people who've read kind of uh, some of the other books as well, is that while I do think Bran is incredibly important to the uh, end game of everything and might be that final chapter, I think Martin has had at times trouble writing him, staying in this perspective of of the boy who's lost use of his legs and and has these things going. And I think there's a reason why Bran's number of POV chapters uh, in some of the more recent books really goes way down. Ah, interesting. Interesting point. Very good. Um, <clears throat> an email from Megan who says, Hi, Podcast Winterfell. I'm a little behind with the readings, but I did want to bring up a point about Edward one chapter. I found it interesting that Robert used the phrase, The others take my wife. I assume that it is probably some sort of common phrase, sort of like a curse, However, I found it interesting that Robert, who's from the South, would use such a phrase. In the TV show, it seems the others, or White Walkers in the show, are all but forgotten in all of the kingdoms other than the North. Even when Cersei teases Tyrion about grumpkins and snarks, she doesn't tease him about believing in White Walkers. No one ever mentions the White Walkers, even in passing, except in the North or with the Wildlings. But here in the book, someone who has spent no time in the North is using the phrase invoking the others. While I don't think that anyone really believes in the others, or at least that they existed, I think it is interesting that perhaps the others and the Long Night left such an impact on Westeros that even South people still acknowledge the idea, even in such an offhanded way. Love the first reread episode. Keep up the good work, everybody. Uh, Thank you, Megan. Here's what I'm thinking. We also learn uh, that Ned and and Robert spent a lot of time as children. I mean, couldn't that be a phrase that Robert took from Ned as kids? Uh, Yeah, that's a great point, Matt. And I'd say, Megan, you know, I know uh, atheists who say, you know, damn you to hell or go to hell, that kind of phrase. I know the 
some of my friends who happen to be Jewish have said uh, the, the infamous exclamation, Jesus Christ. So uh, perhaps it's it's something like that where this others is just a typical kind of, you know, typical kind of, ah, my wife, others take my wife, others take my wife, please, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and we talked last week about uh, Theon saying seven hells and um, Master Illyrio uh, referencing um, the Red God. So I do think some of this is just uh, phrases that are that are used throughout the the um, world. Kind of a vernacular thing, yeah. I mm-hmm. I would agree with that too. Uh, and, and I I I can even suspect that a young Ned would use others take my or you know the others take you or whatever uh, from in a vernacular sense, not so much from a a, a believing sense or, or a sense of story. Even though we mm-hmm. do get a sense that what Edward, between last week's read and this week's read, I think, uh, Bubba, you're bringing up, and, and Susan, you guys talking about the suspicions that Eddard has, um, that that might, uh, that might inform us that Eddard is putting things out on the outside that he may not necessarily think on the inside, right? Yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, any other thoughts about those two emails? Keep them coming. Keep writing. How do people send you an email here to Podcast Winterfell, Matt? Oh, well, they can uh, they can contact me in multiple ways. If you want to tweet me at Winterfell Pod, or if you want to send an email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or you can call 314-669-1840. And with that, yeah, <laughs> and fast. I try to make those fast, um, much faster than on some of my other podcasts. Anyway, uh, guys, I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's been a fabulous conversation. Hopefully you'll stick around for the spoiler conversation that we will have that regards stuff in the books that maybe not have been presented in the television show. If you're reading the books for the first time, you definitely won't want to stick around for that um, after the end music is when that will occur. Next week we will be reading Brand 2, Tyrion 1, John 2, and Daenerys 2. And you can also find a list of all of the weekly chapters at podcastwinterfell.com and uh, in the Game of Thrones reread tab at that website. Remember, there's only one week left to get those written reviews in to win A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. And before we leave, I do want to thank you, Bubba. Why don't you tell us about your podcasting empire that, you're man- that you are the king of uh, these days? I will. Matt, I think we should do five chapters next week so we can include Joffrey 1 from A Game of Thrones. But listeners, if you want to reach me, you can find me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter. I actually got my pod- podcasting start right here on Podcast Winterfell, and I do uh, my own in-depth analysis of the Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire saga world. Uh, go to iTunes, check out the Joffrey of Podcasts, I promise you, you will hear insight unlike any other podcast on our show. And uh, thank you. It's been great to be back, Matt. Thanks. Not to mention that he does things on The Strain called Got Your Milk Podcast. He also does, uh, they, him and Catfish, uh, his partner, did a great, great podcast on the miniseries, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, entitled The Lost Hope Podcast. Um, and he also uh, doesn't just read the Song of Ice and Fire. He also reads. Uh, he also reads books from the lines of what, what? Who's the writer again? What's her name? Uh, by our good friend, the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee. Her new 
novel or her prequel slash sequel slash alternative universe version of those characters from To Kill a Mockingbird, her book, Go Set a Watchman. I did a read-along podcast on that. Excellent. And if people want to find out more about all of those podcasts, why don't you just say your Twitter handle one more time for us? It's at Fit and Trim, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Help me get to 500 followers, people. Thanks. All right. And Susan, you're very active in the A Song of Ice and Fire world. How can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire and uh, recommend the podcast that you listen to, once again, since it's International Podcasting Day, uh, to listen to? Okay. Well, um, I don't have a podcast empire, but uh, I will say that I do enjoy uh, the Joffrey's podcast as well, and I do think that uh, anybody who hasn't yet watched the uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell uh, series that came out uh, on BBC America should do so and should listen to the Lost Hope podcast that goes along with it. Uh, It's a fantastic uh, series, and... uh, Bubba and Catfish did a great job with their with their podcasts that go along with it. Um, I can be found at Black Eyed Lily at um, uh, Twitter, and um, I, I listen to all sorts of podcasts of um, involving the A Song of Ice and Fire universe. And uh, the one thing I mentioned before that was not of that was a uh, wonderful Harry Potter-related academic podcast called uh, uh, MuggleNet Academia that if anybody's interested in looking deeper into that series and some of the uh, literary implications there, I think that's a great podcast to listen to. Excellent. And I myself would be remiss if I did not include our friend Axel Foley, who always announces our, uh, our, our contact information uh, as far as the Game of Thrones podcast, make sure to check out Podcast Littlefell, which analyzes the television show. And uh, also our friends Robin and uh, Roberto from A Pot of Cass, who also cover the television show. If, you, if you're into the television show, check those out. And with that, here's Axel to tell you how to contact me. Okay, folks, this is your last chance to be able to Uh, disengage from the podcast if you don't want to be spoiled about things in the books that uh, may or may not be part of the television show, most likely won't, because otherwise who would have brought it up in the prior part of the podcast? You've been warned. Um, I want to turn to you uh, guys both and get your opinion on this, uh, because it was brought up a little bit in, in our regular section, but I want to expand upon it and ask the question, why would Tywin, a person who we learned had zero wards to this point, suddenly be interested in making Robert Aaron a ward? Um, because we know that Robert Aaron is very important to Littlefinger. Um, uh, so is this Tywin perhaps trying to figure out a way to get a hold of the veil by having Robin as his ward, you know, maybe marrying him to one of his granddaughters, Marcella, or, or to that respect, or, or to somehow get a Lannister into the veil? Um, or is it something larger? Um, remember the whole tapestry thing, and, and it seems to, to me that Littlefinger thinks that, that uh, little Robert Aaron Robin is an heir to something more than, than just the Eerie, in a way, um, or a potential heir to just more, more than just the Eerie. 
So could Tywin have been putting kind of that math together? I mean, I'm going way crackpot here, but, you know, um, is it possible that Tywin might even have had the inclination to eliminate little Aaron while under his care in some way? Ah, how's that for crackpot? Boy, that is deep, deep, deep undercover. I would say, to me, is this whole thing about warding Robin Aaron, little Robert Aaron, with Tywin would have been, in my own mind, I always pictured it as something Cersei was pitching. Cersei was pitching this, and that would be a way, once again, to kind of wrestle control away from John Aaron, because she always thought Jamie should be hand to the king, not Ooh, John I like that better. I like that better. What do you think, Susan? Um, yeah, because I think that, uh, again, I don't think Tywin would have necessarily been privy to this, but if if uh, Cersei had any inclinations about what John Aaron's concerns were and what he was investigating, I think for her to try to have uh, the ability to have some control over him via his son would definitely be part of that. Um, but also something that doesn't get expanded on this uh, first chapter when we were talking about the uh, Warden of the East is that uh, we find out, I, I don't know when it is, but I know it's in the next couple of chapters, we find out that uh, Robert has awarded that to Jamie. And uh, that seems to be, you know, that Ned gets very concerned when he hears that because then it would have the Lannisters as wardens of both the East and the West, and that seems like an awful lot of power in one family. Mm, very good. Yeah, and it seems almost more like a Tyrell type of power grab in that collecting these titles, power through marriage, like we see the Tyrells try later in the series, that it's interesting that the Lannisters were trying it this way, you know, not necessarily by force, but just kind of being weeds and getting in into everybody's business. Right. Being, it, becoming the, substitute, the, the actual substitute of, of who would rightfully be there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what else do we have? Any uh, spoilery stuff on the editor stuff? Do we want to talk about the the um, the Liana thing? Any? Is there anything to talk about that we haven't talked about? Yeah, another... that's a great point. I don't know if there is anything, but one thing I say is that you know I mentioned right at the top the great thing about reading these chapters is about how so much was planned in advance, and so there can be no doubt that you know. George R. R. Martin is a great writer. He had this, he had this whole scenario of Leanna and Rhaegar and all that. It, it was planned out, you know, here in the first book. There's no, you know, like I sometimes accuse the old TV show Lost of like creating a bunch of stuff and then kind of backwards trying to explain it, like George R. R. Martin seems to have done with that Tyrion tumble. Most of the mysteries do have answers, and they were in clues, quote unquote, were put into these first chapters of the very first book. And so I do love that. And I think one thing that is mentioned in that first chapter that people sometimes allude to as a possible clue about Jon Snow is when uh, Eddard's talking about his trip up up to uh, Winterfell and um, that he didn't hardly see any uh, of the small folk out to see him or whatever. And, and uh, Ned says something about uh, they don't often see kings up here in the north and and Robert says something like, well, maybe they're hidden under the snow. And people have uh, pointed that out as a possible allusion to John Snow, King John Snow. 
getting ah. hit out of the snow. Interesting. Very interesting. That would be clever. A little too clever for my brain to pick up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can I can take a wild crackpot theory and just run with it and find it, you know, little pieces of whatever to to, to try and fill it in poorly, but uh, that, would be, that would be pretty brilliant. That would be pretty brilliant. Uh, anything else on editor? or should we move on to John? If it's okay, let's move to John. And I would say that one of the backwards math where he had something and then later created a reason for it. In the John chapter, there is absolutely no hint or nothing that, quote-unquote, the singer that was playing the high heart and reciting mm. about it down at the end of the hall whose voice could scarcely be heard above the roar of the fire. There's nothing at all that hints that that was Mance Raider or anybody special at all. Right. Ah, you know, yeah. I didn't even think about that. But yeah. you're right. And yeah, so well, I, I personally believe I, I, I could easily see George later coming up, you know, in the first Mance meeting when he was writing A Storm of Swords saying, ah, oh, you know, it'd be fun to have him have been there way back when. So they don't have to, explain so much backstory to each other and so uh, right because there is absolutely no clues at all that this guy was Vance Raider at all right yeah yeah it's just a, yeah a far away uh and just mention not even any kind of real description or anything so absolutely uh totally uh, the, agreed the, um, the thing that we meet right here at the beginning where they're describing Tyrion about one eye green one black and hair so blonde it seemed white, a.k.a., you know, the white uh, blonde of the Targaryens. Uh, mm-hmm. So many hints in this chapter that I certainly didn't catch at all. I always like to quote-unquote boast that I the TV show hadn't been out yet. I read the first book, and I figured out who Jon Snow's parents were. But this Tyrion stuff, if it is true, it is, boy, it is really hidden, that, I, and I didn't pick up on these clues at all. Yeah, uh, even even the description of the shadow, the shadow as tall right. as a king, you know, um, that that was very interesting to me to, as terms of speaking towards the theory of Ares uh, plus Joanna equals Tyrion. Um, did how many how many times did it take you to read for for that kind of thing to hit you, uh, Susan? <laughs> um, I think that I I've gotten most of those types of clues by reading other people's information. I'm not clever <laughs> enough to pick up on those myself, <laughs> but once once uh, once I've read uh, where people identify all these things, then when I go back and re-listen to it, it's, you know, then all that stuff pops out, and you're like, oh wow, that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, I-, I did want to just say you had had mentioned that you wanted to bring up something about the Jamie possibly sitting on the Iron Throne. Mm-hmm. Right. You're talking yeah, about this chapter. Good point. Um, my only comment about that was that uh, if you go to George's original plan that he had written out, like the outline for what he thought he was going to, you know, where things were going to go with the books, when it was going to be a three-book series, I believe there was a point where Jamie was going to be sitting on the Iron Throne during part of that process. True, but Jamie, at least in that initial outline, was going to be a true, quote-unquote, villain the whole way through. He was right. really going to be yeah. just an SRB. Yeah. Exactly. It's changed greatly, but I don't know how much of that had changed by the time he was finished with his first book. Mm, interesting. 
Interesting point. Bubba, were you going to say something similar, or did you have a different point about that? Well, just I know you going had one too. on it, there is a part of me, and this is you know complete spoilers, I believe, so we're talking about everybody's read all five books. There is a part of me that begins to think if there is something to the idea of Theon, quote-unquote, going back and becoming ruler of the Iron uh, sorry, or the Iron Islands because he's you know now lost his uh, ability to reproduce and he's so crippled or you know challenged, I guess you'd say. And there would be something if suddenly, okay, then in the north you'd have Bran who couldn't reproduce, uh, being the leader of Winterfell because he's lost use of his lower extremities. And then suddenly had Jamie King of the on the Iron Throne. And if like suddenly you really are putting quote unquote these broken things in charge, if and that's the way it ends where, okay, these people are leaders, but they can't have any kids, and so there you go. Well, Jamie could have kids. Right, but I would wonder if, you know, quote-unquote, he could only be with Cersei, and once, when and if she is no longer with us, if, you know, then he's like, well, I'll be king, but I won't have any more kids. I had three, and they all couldn't enjoy them. They all died. You know, oh, you break my heart, Bubba, because I have this plan of Jamie being sitting the Iron Throne and 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 uh, and Brienne being his queen. Oh, so this really is fantasy land. Okay, well then, sure. <laughs> Everybody's happy. The end. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, any, anything else on the John chapter, guys? No. All right. Well, let's talk about Catelyn then. Uh, first mentions really of Arthur Dane and, of course, the bit about Ashara Dane. Uh, any commentary on any of that? Because I, I think that this chapter uh, is part of the reason why um, you do get, even though I don't, I, I personally am, am pretty much a believer in, in the R plus L equals J theory. Um, a lot of people bring up Ashara Dane as, as, as a possible foe for that. And, of course, we all know that there are lots of theories about uh, Ashara Dane. We'll have to find out later on in the read, of course, but we know, as people who have read all of the books, that Ashara Dane is alleged to have died, and then there's the question of whether she's Septa Lamore. Can't Septa Lamore just be Septa Lamore? I'll say it again. Uh, but uh, does anybody have any comments about any of the, uh, the Arthur Dane, Sword of the Morning, Ashara Dane, uh, at this point in the story? Well, one thing I would say, Matt, is what's interesting is when I, I first read this and there hadn't been a show and I, I'm saying, you know, I'm only you know 60 or 70 pages in when this chapter hits and I read this, there was something about it that convinced me, even on my very first read, that Ashara Dane wasn't the mom. And it might have yeah. been just the fact that, well, you know, quote unquote, all signs point to her so it can't be her, you know, like a murder mystery. But I, I, I adopted that when I first read it and I've always you know, throughout the entire book, said, well, it's not her. Interesting. Very good. Very good. How about you, Susan? Well, it, it is interesting that Ned makes such a big deal out of the fact that Catelyn brings that up and um, how he could have potentially let her go along with thinking that as a way of diverting it from uh, the idea that it was, would be Leanna's son. But I guess maybe he's too honorable to have done that. Yeah, I, I almost saw it as a reaction to just anybody digging into it at all. That's that was what yeah. that was the impression I got, you know, from, from any angle. Um, but it, it is interesting that the, that those servants were dismissed. Um, also, uh, we find out. So, um, what do you think happened to those servants? Where are they at? 
uh, well, let me just say, the man who fires the servant must swing the sword. Oh, I don't think it went to that extreme, but um, I don't know. They were never heard from again. <laughs> Anything else on the Catlin chapter, guys? Wow. I don't think so. This short spoiler section this week. Anything on the Aria yeah. chapter, guys? Oh, well, I, you know, just to be honest, I, I think it's hard to have some spoiler section because the big things, you know, the R plus L equal J, we have talked to death. And and I'm not so sure there's too many super clues for kind of future things or things that really kind of pay off with some of our great theories. That's true. Right. Yeah. Well, in uh, this chapter, we were talking about the fact that uh, John and Arya are the only two that have the Stark features. Right. And uh, it hasn't come up yet that Arya looks so much like her aunt. But right. they did they did bring up um, Jane calling her Arya horseface. And another mention of a likeness to Leanna is it says the one thing that she was better at than Sansa was uh, horse horsemanship. Yeah. Very good. Which would have been like Leanna. Right. I so. always felt that was just another way of of sorry, Le of Arya looking like Leanna. It was just another way to make the connection of Leanna and John, I felt in the quote unquote clues that Martin was leaving. Right. right. I think so too. Right. Very good. Um I let's think about you brought up you brought up the original outline. Um and I don't know. Is there any inclination here uh, of what uh, George might have intended about John and Arya uh, here in in this chapter that we've seen so far? Or do you think that this is something that he has completely abandoned even by the time he's starting an Arya chapter? Hmm. Sorry, say that again, Matt, because uh, you've made me think of something else. Now, the the infamous thing. So, sorry, say that again. Well, I, you know, I, the original outline. Um, kind of has John and uh, and Arya almost as a love interest. Is that not correct? Right. Yeah. No. 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 And so, I've always felt that there have been hints at this in these books. Really? Uh, and okay. Yeah, I read it the first time, and I felt there were hints like that for some reason, like they would be an item. And so, and I say this based on one of the most recent uh, Winds of Winter preview chapters, where it was like, boy, there's still little hints that their connection is is deeper than brothers and sisters would ever have. Always thinking about each other. I mean, more so than they right. do with any other sibling. The yeah, and just the and way, you know, just the way that she describes him or he describes her. You know, it's it's a little, you know, it's a little Lannister-y. It is a little Lannister-y. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> Um, but but if they're cousins, it's fine, right? I guess so. Certainly in this world. <laughs> Definitely in this world. Um, but, I mean, I didn't see any real evidence of that in this chapter is what I'm saying. Oh, well, I think, hold on. What about that one line where, where oh, shoot, I forget if it was this chapter when you read last week where uh, Arya was like, if I switch my face to look like Daenerys, I can get busy with Jon. <laughs> <laughs> is that one of the Joffrey chapters? That no, no, still... listen. 
that wasn't in last week's chapter about how she became a faceless man so she could change her identity and John wouldn't be freaked out about making out with his sister? Hmm. Uh, Who would have known? <laughs> All right. Anything else on any of these four chapters before we say goodnight? Nothing. Just, I mean, I've made some wise cracks about it, but reading actually the chapters you guys read last week and these you know, it's, maybe it's not nice to say, but I wish the story were this tight. I wish it was this focused. I feel like this book particularly has the influence of Martin having just worked in TV because these are, you know, kind of great chapter endings. Everything's are quick as opposed to, you know, I know some people love them, but at times these last couple books really do feel like bloat. And so, uh, I don't know. It, it reminds me why I love Martin so much, the, these chapters. Very good. Anything else? Okay. All right. Well, Bubba is at Fit and Trim on Twitter, yeah. F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. And Susan is at Black Eyed Lily, B-L-A-K-A-B-L-A-C-K-E-D-L-I-L-Y. Is that right? B-L-A-C-K-E-Y-E-D-L-I-L-Y. Oh. <laughs> uh, all right. You were close. And uh, I'm at Wonderful Pod. We'll see you later. Bye. Good night. Good night. Call recording has been completed. It might take 20 minutes. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.